everyone's a counselor. Um, you know, we may not think about counseling in the sense that we all sit down behind a desk and, uh, and have a private conversation with somebody who pours out their troubles, but, but uh, everyone's a counselor. And I think there, were, there was some counseling going on just in the conversations that we had even this morning. Uh, when people talk about their situation, how they view a particular thing, they're making an evaluation uh, based on their understanding of the, the scriptures and about life, and you respond in some way, whether you affirm what they're saying or you, you challenge them or offer up some other option. I think everyone is a, a counselor, and the question is, what kind of counselor are we going to be? So, when you think about counselors, who who can you think of that best exemplifies a good counselor? What what was it about that person that that made them such a good counselor. Can you think of someone in particular? You don't have to name them if you don't want to, but what is it about them that makes it, makes them a good counselor? Okay. All right. Insightful. Good listener. Anything else? Okay, so they're trying to point you to the scriptures. Um, you know, they they're able to see life clearly. They're able to kind of distill all of the uh, issues that have arisen and and distill them down to one critical thing or a couple critical things that need to be that need to be handled. And uh, for me, I I think of my dad often who exemplified a good counselor in my life, often gave me good, wise advice and pointed me back to the Scriptures, always did that. And uh, certainly my pastor from the church that we came from, uh, Inner City, Pastor Doran, uh, was the same way. And, and he was always point, pointing people back to the Scriptures and always very insightful, good listener. So all these things that you've, um, that you've listed. Well, in this fourth week on biblical counseling, we're going to look at Christ through the eyes of the Apostle John. So, Jesus, on his way to Galilee, uh, came across this well and this woman. And there, I think we see some principles about good spiritual counsel. And so, we're going to look at the wonderful counselor and how he has, um, ha- has used his ability to understand the Scriptures and life to point someone to the truth. And that's really what counseling is all about. It's about speaking the truth to someone in love. All right, so let me pray and and then we'll begin. Lord, thank You for this time in which we can reflect on Your Word, particularly this uh, account in John's Gospel. And we pray that uh, You would help us, give us uh, wisdom and understanding as we seek to uh, change our lives and reflect more of our Savior. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Now, I want to say from the beginning that this is not a passage on counseling. Okay, We're going to draw out principles from it that will help us in how we deal with other people. But this passage is not about counseling. Primarily, it's about Christ and who He is. It's about Christ offering Himself to a woman who was despised by His His ethnic people. Okay, so 
Um, so we're, we're looking for principles here. So in order to do this, let me just uh, walk through the text together and, and try to explain it. And we'll try to, uh, then after we walk through, then we'll try to uh, summarize some principles that would be helpful for us. All right, someone read verses 1 to 3. So here the Pharisees in verse 1 are frustrated because John was baptizing lots of people. Now Jesus is baptizing even more than that. And then John inserts this little parenthetical statement. He's, well, actually, Jesus is not the one who's baptizing. It's actually the disciples who are doing the baptizing. But the, the point is, is that Jesus had a, an authoritative message and and because of that, he was drawing people to himself. And the Pharisees were frustrated by this because baptism was their initiatory right to come into uh, a right relationship with with this Messiah. And the Pharisees had a problem with that. So verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he's on his way to Galilee, and he decides to pass through Samaria. Actually, uh, the way that, that John writes it, uh, sounds like there was no other way that he could go. But actually, what Jews would do is they'd actually make a, uh, uh, a route that would go around Samaria so they didn't have to go through that filthy city. Samaritans were, uh, in the minds of Jews, half-breeds. And they were that, actually. They were Jews who had married um, Gentiles. And the result was these Samaritan people. And so they saw the Samaritans as unclean. We'll see that here in, in a minute. Someone read verses 5 and 6 for us. Okay, so they're on their way to Galilee in the northern region of Israel and they pass through Samaria and he stops at a town in Samaria called Sychar where uh, Jacob had given him his son this well. And here in verse 6 we see something important about Jesus and that he is tired from his journey. He's wearied. We see his humanity that that um, he, just like us, gets tired after a long day. Now, we know that th- that it happened at the end of verse 6 at the 6th hour, which is around what time of day? Right, yeah. So if you look in the margin of your Bible, you might have a note there. Um, 6 p.m. Roman time, but John would be writing according to Jewish time, so noon Jewish time. They started their, um, th- their hours that, uh, at 6 in the morning, so this would be, this would be at noon. So at noon, he's been walking all day, and they they arrived there, and he needed to rest because he is wearied from his journey. All right, someone read verses seven to nine.
Okay? So, as you know from the story, a Samaritan woman comes to draw the water and, and Jesus doesn't even hesitate. He just starts speaking to her. And this initially surprises the woman. Uh, first of all, why would you even speak with me? And secondly, why would you ever ask me for a drink? And the end of verse 9 gives us another parenthetical statement to help us understand a little bit about the culture. Jews have no dealings. They don't associate with Samaritans. And so they have a cultural problem with the Samaritans. And we're going to see a little bit later, they also have a theological uh, divide that, that is there. That the Jews recognize, understand the Samaritans not to have the full picture. But Christ is not bound by worldly restrictions and prejudices, is He? He shows no hesitation in going to the Samaritan woman. In fact, the reason that He goes to this city, goes this way that, that Jews would not typically go, was so that He could meet with, with her at this well. And so He defies two Jewish restrictions. One, talking to a woman, that would be uh, unusual. Uh, and then talking to a Samaritan, because the Samaritans were defiled. Not only was uh, she defiled, but um, but anything that she touched would be defiled, according to the Old Testament law. There was ceremonial uncleanness, which would make it doubly bad for Jesus to speak to this woman and to, to get a drink from her. Um, Don Carson in his commentary on John writes, Within a generation of Jesus, Jewish leaders would codify a law that reflected long-standing popular sentiment to the effect that all the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. So you see the Jews had nothing good to say about the Samaritans, and yet Jesus here asks her for a drink in verse 7. And so because of these restrictions, um, it's understandable that she's surprised. Why would you talk to me, for one? And, and secondly, why would you ask me for a drink? And we see that in the way that she asks this question. Notice in verse 9, uh, how is it that you, and here's the simple question, how is it that you ask me for a drink? But she inserts these two phrases that help us understand the... the um, the strangeness, the peculiarity of, of Jesus doing this. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, being a Samaritan, for a drink? How could you possibly do that? Alright, verse 10. Jesus, answers and said, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Now, here Jesus starts to to turn the conversation towards spiritual things. He starts to point her to his own identity. If you knew who it is that asked you for a drink, we're going to find out who this is. The Samaritan woman is going to find out who this is at the end. If she knew who was asking her for water, she, in fact, would ask for something greater, and that is living water. Um, And this living water that Jesus is talking about, he's going to explain what it is here but he's not talking about natural, physical water like she would think. And so he's saying that, that this has spiritual significance. Would someone read verses 11 and 12?
Okay, so obviously the woman doesn't understand what he's talking about when he's talking about living water. She doesn't understand the spiritual significance. She thinks that he's focusing on some kind of natural water that she could literally drink. And if he wanted this living water, how is it that he's going to get some since he didn't, doesn't, didn't bring anything and this well is deep, probably 100 feet deep, and Jacob had dug this well and, and used materials to draw from it, but, but how is Jesus going to provide water when he doesn't even have anything to draw this water from? And... Um, and her, the point of her question is, if, if he can draw better water than what Jacob draws from this well, or what Jacob caused to be able to, to be draw, drawn from this well, then he must be greater than Jacob and his sons. All right, verses 13 and 14. Someone want to read that? Alright, so we have two kinds of water being talked about here. What's the first kind that Jesus is talking about? Okay, physical water that you could actually drink. And then the second kind, he's saying, is some kind of uh, water that will satisfy a spiritual thirst. It is a, a, a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. And so now think of it from the perspective of the Samaritan woman. What is she thinking about right now? Right. So far, she's only thinking about physical water. So when he says in verse 14, the water I will give him, what do you think she's thinking of when he says the water I will give him? Physical water still. The water I give. See, everyone who drinks this water from Jacob's well will thirst. But the water that I give, they will have water springing up for eternal life. So she's thinking, so this some kind of eternal satisfaction of physical thirst? I think she's still thinking um, physical water. And certainly she doesn't get it. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So she is still confused, isn't she? She doesn't get it. She thinks he's talking about physical water. I don't want to have to keep coming here to draw water, and as some uh, commentators have pointed out, she came at a time of day when most people would not come. In fact, she came in order because she was such an outcast in her city. Uh, because we're going to see, she's got some um, some some problems as an adulterer. But but because of that, she comes at the midpoint of the day, at the hottest time of the day. They would normally come early in the morning, or uh, or even in the cool of the night, but but not during the the heat of the day. And so she's attracted to this idea. I don't want to have to come at this time. I, I want to be able to never have to come again. I don't want to have to thirst. Verse 16, He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. So Jesus, again, keeps pointing her back to spiritual things. She's still thinking on the physical level. She doesn't understand what's going on. And so Jesus keeps pointing her back to the spiritual. And so in order to do that, He wants to point out uh, her current situation. And this change of subject might be seen as, as a little bit uh, strange, but at this point, the woman doesn't get who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is ultimately doing here. Okay? He's ultimately trying to show her who He is and, and what this living water is. And so because she doesn't get it, 
Um, she needs to understand her deepest and most significant need, and it is not physical thirst. Her deepest need is the deepest need that every single human being has, and that is a need for God and for eternal life. And so in order to point her to that, he tackles this subject of her, her morality, her, her messed up, or we could say her immorality, her messed up life, and uh, in order to point to the fact that she doesn't need physical water primarily, but, but uh, this living water. Don Carson, again, his commentary says, both in the fourth gospel, you got it there on your handout, and in the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, the sheer flexibility of Jesus leaps from the pages as he deals with a wide array of different people and their varied needs. No less startling, though more often ignored, is the manner in which Jesus commonly drives the individuals uh, to the individual's greatest sin, hopelessness, guilt, despair, and need. And this should not be surprising. If he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it is inevitable that he will deal with sin in those who express some interest in knowing and following him. So we're going to talk about about this, but when it comes to counseling, we're trying to point people to their deepest need. That's why when Ken asked a couple of weeks ago, what do we do with unbelievers who come to us and, and ask for counsel? Well, the answer always is to point them to their deepest need, which is what Jesus is doing here. He could have, you know, tried to to uncover and to try to to reconcile a lot of these problems that she had in his life, but it would be like putting Band-Aid on a cancer patient, right? It, it may help on the on the surface, but ultimately we need to get down to the need. What is the true source of the problem? What's the greatest thing that is hindering that person's life? All right, so verses 17 and 18. Someone want to read those? So Jesus um, is is working on pointing out her deepest need, and and um, and she tries to 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 keep him from getting into the the details of his life, and so she says, "Well, I I don't really have a husband," and he handles handles this in a way that's sensitive but gracious. First, he commends her by telling the truth. You're right when you say you have no husband. Technically the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband, and um, but you have had many husbands before. And she ends with the affirming statement, what you have said is true. <laughs> All right, verses 19 to 20. Okay, so here, um, Jesus has shown that He is more than an ordinary being, that, that He is some kind of a prophet. He, she, she recognizes this right away. The fact that she would know this about Him, even though she, He hasn't been around, um, this is the first time that they've met, and yet He knows about her life. She recognizes that, that He is some kind of a prophet. And because He is a prophet, she brings up, uh, she brings up a point of theological contention that the Jews and the Samaritans would often debate. 
And that is, where is the temple supposed to be? Where is the right place of worship? They both recognized that uh, God had commanded their forefathers to find a place that would be the place where He would reside in that temple. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 12.5, Seek the place the Lord your God would choose from among all their tribes to put His name there for His dwelling. So here, God is telling Moses, you, Israel, need to find a place where I'm going to dwell. And so the Jews obviously believe that that sacred temple, that sacred place of worship is where? In Jerusalem. But the Gentiles, or not the Gentiles, but the uh, Samaritans believe that it's in Mount Gerizim. And uh, Jesus is going to to uh, point that out here when He talks about that. In fact, verse 20 that's what she's talking about. Our fathers, fathers worshipped in this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim. And um, this is the place where Abraham had built his altar before he entered the Promised Land and where the Israelites were to hear about the blessings of the Lord. And so the, the Samaritans held to this place. This is the place where God is truly worshipped. So notice Jesus' response in verses 21 and 22. Someone read that for us. Okay, so Jesus says, Believe me, an hour is coming. Now, when we see that phrase, an hour is coming, it uh, refers primarily to the time in which, well, at least in John's Gospel, it refers to the time of His death and resurrection and ascension. And so He's saying there is coming a time when does it, this debate's going to be over. Whether the, the, the place of worship should be in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim, that debate's going to be over. Because, verse 22, uh, you don't understand what's going on right now. God is not going to be restricted to a uh, simple uh, building structure. And, uh, and I think he's also pointing out the fact that the Samaritans don't fully understand uh, all of what God had said about worshiping Him. And the reason for that is because the Samaritans only... Uh, followed the Pentateuch. They only followed the first five books of the Bible. And so when Jesus says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, He's saying something about their worship. Their worship that that you haven't taken into account the whole Old Testament Scriptures, the prophets, the Psalms, the historical books. And so you have a very limited knowledge of God. And so you need to recognize that we, notice, um, we worship what we know. Who, Who do you think the we is there? Jesus is speaking there. So that would be the Jews, right? He's saying, here's the conflict, the theological conflict. You're talking about where God is to be worshipped, but, but I'm telling you that we as Jews understand it more fully because we take into account the whole Old Testament Scriptures. We have a superior knowledge of God. And in fact, uh, he, he goes on to say that salvation is from the Jews. Now what he's saying is not salvation is found in our Jewish temple. What is he saying? Salvation is found in in Him, right? He is, in fact, standing in front of her as a Jew. And He's saying salvation is from the Jews. And so He's criticizing the Samaritans who grew up associating worship of God with their culture and their temple. 
And Jesus is saying, according to God, according to me, the way of approaching God that you are, are pursuing is, is wrong. All right, verses 23 and 24. So I want to read that. Alright, so here's that phrase again. An hour is coming. We saw it in verse 21. And it refers to what time period? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So he's saying the same thing here. An hour is coming. And, in fact, it now is here. It has already come in my ministry. I'm standing here uh, affirming to you that true worship happens through me. It happens in spirit and in truth. All of, of God's worshipers, all of the true worshipers are those who know the Son and who are born of the Spirit. Who know the, the Son, that's the truth part, and are born in the Spirit. That's the, the part about the Spirit. And uh, we see this, that God is the one who's seeking out these worshipers. Um, end of verse 23, For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God's looking for true worshipers. And so, effectively, what he's saying here is that at my death and resurrection, and even right now, because of my life ministry, true worship of God occurs because people have come to know me. And consequently, God has put His Spirit in them. And so, true worship happens uh, through the Spirit as they know me. Verse 25, here's her response. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming he who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So here, I think she's making a point um, that that we're going to have to just agree to disagree. Okay, We understand it this way. You Jews understand it that way. And certainly, you might have a little bit more understanding because you're some kind of a prophet. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to clear it all up for us and he'll tell us exactly how we should worship. Little does she know that that the Messiah is standing right there with her. <clears throat> One of the expectations that the Samaritans have is, have had was that the Messiah would be a teacher, and that's why she's expecting him to explain all things. Um, and so uh, Jesus responds in verse 26 by saying, I who speak to you am He. There's coming a day, she's saying, when the Messiah is going to come. He's going to clear everything up. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. The woman had had started down the road of suspecting what the truth was about where to worship and how to worship. Then her comments about the Messiah uh, may have been some kind of a confession to test what this Jewish stranger would say. And Jesus, of course, uses this as an invitation to respond and to show her more clearly, I am the Messiah. Okay, so there's John 4 in a quick summary. Now we want to see if we can draw some application or some principles from the passage that will help us as we speak to others uh, regarding their needs. All right, number one. Use the truth to break down worldly restrictions and prejudices. Okay, Christ 
did not care that all the other Jews took a different route to get to Galilee. He did not care because he was concerned about all people. And that's one of the points that Luke makes in his Gospel is that Christ came to save the world. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. His, his, his job was not just to, to save Jews, but also Gentiles. And so, he goes out of his way despite the worldly restrictions and prejudices that his people are not supposed to talk to these people. His people are not supposed to, to take water from these people. And uh, so for us, as biblical counselors, as we speak to people just in casual conversation or in a formal, you know, kind of sitting across the desk counseling them, we can't let worldly parameters dictate how we counsel or who we counsel. And so we need to think of things through a biblical lens that that God is seeking all kinds of worshipers and we should not be uh, put off by someone just because of their race or ethnicity or or background. And uh, so we're talking about defying worldly parameters, which means we need to look at people through a biblical lens. So in caring for people for who are not like you, you need to consider what is the most important thing, what's their deepest spiritual or what's their deepest need, and is their spiritual one. We need to think about it in terms of the gospel, and that should help us to shed those um, prejudices that we have toward other people. So, who is it that you could care for and give counsel to that that people who know you would not expect you to? Right? What kind of people would would they be kind of surprised that you were spending time with them or counseling them? Maybe it's a, at your place of work. Maybe someone who's a, a, a blue-collar worker or a, a white-collar worker. You don't normally associate with those kind of people. And um, so so perhaps that's someone that you could, you could reach out to. Maybe it's someone of a different race in your neighborhood that you don't often associate with. They kind of have their friends. We kind of have ours. Maybe uh, maybe you're married and someone else is single or you're single and someone else is married and it's kind of not really the normal way that people hang out. You know, they, they hang out with people that are in the same life circumstances as them and, and they give counsel based on what they know because they've been in that situation. But, but can we break some of those worldly molds and still be able to, to help someone uh, who is different than us? Alright, so the truth destroys worldly restrictions and prejudices. We need to think of what's uh, at, at, at the uh, center, what's most important. Secondly, connect the vertical with the horizontal. Connect the vertical with the horizontal. Often we get bogged down with details and struggles and the dynamics of the relationships that sometimes we fail to connect life with God, that's the vertical, with my day-to-day living, what that looks like, that's the horizontal. And one of the most important things that you can do as a biblical counselor is to help people see how God is a part of life. And that's what Jesus does here. See, the problem is for, for us as individuals and for the people that we're talking to, sin is going to blind them to what is the most important reality in life. And so our job as a counselor is to take the vertical and connect it with their horizontal. And, and they don't quite understand how, how this affects 
their life. They don't understand how this affects their circumstances. We want to show, listen, God is a part of every circumstance of life. God is, God is the most important thing in all of life, and we need to see how that affects the way that we live. Even when it comes to unbelievers, um, you know, unbelievers don't don't by nature consider spiritual matters. And so, even with this situation that we're reading about in John four, we have to understand that that Jesus is pointing her to to the spiritual, not to the physical. She's thinking that she has all of these needs, and we could list all of these different needs that she might have. The fact that she has to draw her own water, and she has to do it at the heat of the day, and that she's an outcast and that she's got all sorts of men problems and yet Jesus doesn't really make any of those the center of what her problem is. The most important crisis that she was facing was that she stood under judgment from the Holy God apart from turning to the Messiah. So this is something that will take practice and a lot of consideration. Uh, it's hard to do this kind of thing on the spot, connecting the vertical to the horizontal, because we do get bogged down with the details. When someone tells kind of the circumstances of their life, it's difficult to say, okay, well, here's how this affects what you do. Here's how the Scriptures affect what you do. And so sometimes it takes some some thought, some con- consideration. But what you ought to be thinking in the meantime is, is can can that person see God in the in the mundane details of life? Right? Can we see God in, in some of the things that we don't even think about, like what we have for breakfast? Can we see the fact that God actually provided that food for us? Or the fact that He He watched over us while we slept, something that we maybe give little thought to? Uh, can, can we see that God is sustaining every breath that we take even during this hour? So Christ is taking something that seems kind of mundane, just drawing water from a well, and He puts spiritual significance to it. You know what you really need? You need living water. And this living water will allow you to never thirst again. So maybe think of some analogies in life that you can use and, and then maybe if, if you know a person, you kind of see the things that they constantly are coming to you for struggles, then try to take a situation and and help uh, give it significance by showing this, the spiritual realities of it. Help people to see God in the midst of their circumstances. Number three, give them real hope for their daily struggles. Give them real hope for their daily struggles. See, Christ doesn't say, you know, your problem is you don't have living water. Okay, then He takes His water and He leaves. No, He he gives her hope. And, And He does that by first pointing her to her sin. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. But, but then helping her to see that what she ultimately needs is the Messiah. She needs to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. And, um, and the water that she thought was important for her was not the most important thing. So um, Jesus gives her hope amidst her daily struggles. Number four, don't, don't be shy about sin. Don't be shy about sin. Instead, deal graciously and honestly, even with the most difficult of sins. Jesus, remember, changes the topic and says, go call your husband, because she's not understanding what he's talking about when it comes to the living water. He says, go call your husband. It seems like he makes a quick change in the conversation to something that doesn't really 
have any significance to what they're talking about. And yet, when we think about why Christ came, He came to be the Savior of the world. He came to, His name means He came to save His people from their sins. Right? So it shouldn't be surprisingly, it shouldn't be surprising that He deals directly, openly, honestly, but also graciously with her. You're, you know, you are right. You're true when you say, when you say you have no husband. So there He's, He's dealing honest or um, graciously with her, but He's also dealing honestly with her. You know, you, you've had five men that you've lived with and none of them have been your husbands. He's not scared to bring up the fact that, that she had five men before. So as counselors, this is one of the, the most difficult things to do is to not shy away from dealing with people's sins. We want to be honest. We want to be gracious. Um, but sometimes we don't want to point out their sins. It's hard for us to to um, to be direct with people when they're talking about their sins, we want to we want to commiserate with them in some ways. One of the temptations that 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 you will have when you deal with other people's sins is to downplay their sin and to say something like, you know, I struggle with sin as well, and that may be appropriate at times to show that you are real. Obviously, that's not something Jesus would do, but something that we would have to do as fallen sinners. But, but, um, but it is extremely necessary to point out sin as sin. Otherwise, if you're not pointing it out as sin as the counselor, then what's going to happen to the person who's listening on the other time, side who's already deceived about it, right? They're, they've already explained it away and called it something other than sin. So, obviously... That, that calling it sin, you need to be very careful how you do that. And we're going to talk about that over the next eight weeks because um, we first need to listen and make sure that we understand the situation before we call something sin. Don't say, well, I've, I, I completely understand it after two minutes of listening and then just start railing on them for their sin. You, you need to listen. You need to figure out how this truth comes in line with the Scriptures or out of line with the Scriptures and then call the sin, sin. Okay, so there's a couple dangers there. One is jumping to an ex- a conclusion that's not true. The other is completely avoiding it and just saying, well, it's, it's okay. Everybody does that. Everybody struggles with that. You'll get over it. Um, that's actually not helpful. And uh, certainly it's not helpful when it comes to unbelievers explaining their sins away or commiserating with them, saying, you know, I, I have the same sorts of thing. You know, uh, we don't want to come across as if we don't handle or don't deal with sin um, and that we are high and mighty and lifted up and, and uh, we're on this higher plane. We don't certainly want to do that, but at the same time, we don't want to ignore the sin. All right. Well, this topic was difficult enough for her, the fact that she had this man that she was living with and that she changed the subject and asked some theological questions. Well, you people worship in and your mountain, and we worship in ours. And um, so so don't be surprised when you bring up their sin if the, the topic changes, but, but keep pointing them back to that because that's the only way that real, genuine change is going to happen. Number five, orient them to true worship. There are lots of wor- reasons why people struggle to worship God. Some believers will not understand why you know, we do many of the things that we do. 
Some believers will make their own personal preferences more of a priority than worshiping God or the Word of God that is taught. Others will have backgrounds that really confuse them about the worship of God and what is true worship. Like you think of someone who's saved out of Catholicism. They, they come to our church and they see us taking the Lord's Supper and they're thinking, oh, that's something that we did at our church, our Catholic church. And so now they have they put a different emphasis. They have a different understanding of what we're doing, right? So, so we need to explain to them, orient them to, uh, to true worship. This is what Jesus did with the Samaritans. She had an upbringing that misled her to think that worship of God happened in one way, at Mount Gerizim, at this temple. That, in fact, was not how worship of God happened. It happened at the Jerusalem temple, and ultimately it would happen through the temple of Christ's body, right? Jesus, Jesus Himself. And that's real worship. And so we need to help people that we counsel to, to see, to overcome these misconceptions, misunderstandings about how they were raised. They... We all are, uh, by nature, theologians, right? We, we all have ideas of, of how we think of God and how the world uh, is supposed to run, how I'm supposed to, to respond in, in specific situations. And so we need to reorient them to the truth of God. And that's much of what counseling is. Finally, help them know and love Jesus. This is what Jesus did. He says, uh, she says, she says to him, "Well, when the Messiah comes, he'll clear it all up for us." And Jesus says, "I, who speak to you, am He." The most important thing that you can do as a counselor is to help people grow in their knowledge and love for Jesus. Now, admittedly, some of your counseling will be done with unbelievers, but lot, a lot, or maybe uh, the majority of your counseling will be done with believers. And so, you still need to be pointing them back to knowing and loving Jesus. Paul's prayer for the the churches often as he writes to them, the primary thing that he prays for is that they would grow in their knowledge and love of Christ. They would grow into full maturity. Uh, and so we're constantly pointing people back to knowing and loving Him. And uh, this, this could happen either with believers or unbelievers. Uh, for, for unbelievers, obviously, they need to come to know Him in a personal way, they need to come to know Christ as their Savior. For a believer, they need to be constantly reoriented back to knowing and loving Him. All right, so point people to their greatest need, follow the example of the wonderful counselor. Okay, next week we're going to start uh, a section of this study. It's going to last eight weeks, and we're going to take two weeks on each section of the counseling model that's set up for us by. Uh, Paul Tripp and Ted, one of the Tripp brothers, in their book, um, well, it's on here, isn't it? Yeah, Paul Tripp, in his book, um, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. So the, the four steps, four important things that need to be a part of counseling are love, know, speak, and do. Okay, love, know, speak, and do. You love the person, show them some grace. We'll talk about that over the next two weeks. And then know, understand the situation, then you speak to them, and then you expect some results. So you, you, you try to push them that way. So next week is, is an important part of, of what we're going to do as counselors, and so um, look forward to, to looking at that with you. Any questions or comments? Ken? Okay. Please. 
All right. Anybody else have a question? See, he's got us all like, okay, what is this? We really want to know. They don't want to ask a question because they want to hear yours. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, I I have to look back at at my notes cuz I don't remember what I thought about that when I studied through it myself, so I'd have to yeah, as the living water that Jesus was talking about. Yeah, I'd ha- I'd have to look again. What do the commentaries say about the blood there? Came by water and by blood. Yeah. 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 I apologize, Ben or uh, Ben, um, Bill. 